You're listening to the James Faith in Jesus Work Series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. James chapter 1. Been James for about four weeks now, and I just love the book of James. I really don't think there's many people that read the book of James and don't think, man, this is amazing. This is difficult. This is hard. This is very practical, and, and at times it really shakes us, but it is good. And it is good at times for us to be shaken. Last week, we spent our time in James chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. And they are immensely helpful verses to aid us in our ongoing battle against sin and temptation. And I want to begin this week in the same place that we began last week. And that is to recognize our corporate desperate need for what James is saying here. To recognize that we are all sinners and that we still struggle with temptation. I think there's way too many churches that try and pretend like they've got everything together. And church becomes a competition to see from the outward appearance who can look like they're most holy. Who can put on the best show. And so we start having these like mini competitions. And listen, you know, I'm all for competition when it comes to sports and stuff. But we have these, these competitions where it becomes about our self-righteousness. It becomes about us showing everybody else how holy and how great we are. And that's just not a part of the gospel. A part of the gospel is not us coming to God and us coming to people and saying, look at how good I am. The gospel is, look at how awful I am. Look at how undeserving I am. Look at how much I need grace, that I need mercy, and then seeing how how God graciously changed the heart of a sinner into a saint. How he makes us born again, and then step by step, day by day, makes us more and more like Christ. It's a long battle, it's it's an ongoing thing, but for anyone to stand here or to stand anywhere and say, you know what? I've really, I've really passed that struggle with temptation. I I don't battle like I do. And the, the funny thing is, when we look at each other, I think sometimes we wonder, ah, what does, I mean, this is what I wonder, what does is, what is Ian Cameron battle with? Where is he tempted? No. Where, where are some of the other folks in our church that I look up to that are godly examples? How do they still battle with temptation? But I know the truth that they do and that we all do in different areas. And so this text is immensely practical and important for all of us. In James chapter 1, verse 12 to 16, James begins to help us understand what this battle looks like. And I I do think it's very important and very helpful for us to step back and to see the process. We see how temptation, that it it happens because we have our own lust, we have these own desires inside of us, and that there's also these enticing things out in the world that draw us into that, and eventually that temptation gives birth to sin. And that 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 lust and that sin as it grows up and as it matures, it gives birth to death. And for us to be able to look back and to see the cycle, that might be very helpful in our lives, to slow down the process. Last week, I gave you five steps, and those steps weren't original with me. I told you last week they were from Sinclair Ferguson, but I I think that these steps of the, the cycle of sin are very practical and helpful. First, we saw that there's attraction that you're attracted to that thing. Second, we saw deception. 
that soon the thing that you once understood to be wicked and evil and that, that you believe to be truly that way has deceived you into thinking it's good. Then preoccupation. Your time begins to be spent thinking about that thing and justifying your actions, justifying what you want to do. Finally, when desire meets opportunity, we have conception. And the sin takes place. And the end of the sin, it never, it never gives what it promises, does it? The end of that is always subjection. That we become slaves to the sin that we thought would set us free. That the thing that we pursued as joy ends up bringing only sadness, only destruction, only death. And I think this cycle is, is very helpful. If we can first be reminded that Satan is the father of lies and that every temptation is an attempt to deceive. Every time we're tempted to do something evil, it is an attempt by Satan to deceive us into doing something that really isn't good, right? It's always the facade of good. It never fulfills the promise. And we ought to slow the process down in our own lives and learn to identify the cycle so that we have an opportunity to take the way of escape that God gives us. All of this, I believe, is a great start. But it is just a start. It isn't all that James gives us to help us in our battle with temptation and sin. In fact, some of what, what we've done so far is simply outline the problem. right? What we've seen, it, the problem is, this is how this, this scenario works in our lives. We are tempted. Eventually, te- our, our lust, our temptation, the enticement, we, we give birth, and, and that turns into sin, and sin brings forth death, and that is what happens, and that's the, that's the fact of, that we've all experienced before in our lives, but we haven't got to the place yet where we've said, and here's the cure. Here's the help. Now, slowing down the process and seeing the warning signs and looking for ways to escape, that's a great start, but that's not going to do it for you. What's kind of amazing about sin, what's amazing about these things, is that we can come to the church and as, as Brother John said this morning, we can be so educated in all of this. We can know the truth about sin and yet still be deceived by it at that moment. And it doesn't matter if you know all the steps, eventually you're still going to fall into the trap. And so what is the cure? I mean, how do, I'm ultimately death, but if you're not just going to die right now, then what, what do we do while we're living here on earth until we do finally meet Christ? I believe verses 17 and 18 are incredibly helpful when it comes to us finding the cure to our sin problem. Unfortunately, verses 17 and 18 are often separated from the text that precedes them. Oftentimes we read verses about you know, us receiving these good and perfect gifts from the Father, and we just apply that to anything we receive. Oh, oh God, thank you that you're such a, a good giver of gifts. And not realizing that that, actually, that text is supposed to help us in the verse that precedes it, which is, do not err, my, my beloved brethren. Stop, stop sinning. Every good gift is from God. And so we're going to see tonight how those things work together. But I want to read the whole context. So James chapter 1, starting verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. 
Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will he begat us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There's one thing I want to mention that I failed to mention last week, and I think this is just this, this wonderful juxtaposition of these two things, and that is in verse number 12, we have the man who endures temptation. What is he given? The crown of life. When you endure temptation, there is this crown of life available. But the consequence to surrendering to that temptation is what? It's death. It's destruction. And I think that that's just this amazing thought to me. Because so often, we perceive temptation as this thing that we hate. I don't know how many times I've prayed the prayer, God, don't, don't make me want that thing anymore. Help me to just just not even desire to sin. But the fact of the matter is God has left us here and we still desire sin at times, right? We still, we still are tempted. And we see that as such a negative thing. But here's the truth that's presented. When you endure temptation, there's a crown of life. Now, yes, when you surrender to it, there is death. But temptation, in a sense, is an opportunity for us to show our love for God that it's greater than that thing we're tempted by. Temptation doesn't, I mean, wherever you're tempted, stop always thinking about it as this awful thing that you experience as temptation. Because I think we assume that nobody else feels the way that we feel about temptation. Certainly we know we're tempted by different things, but we all hate ourselves for being tempted. But why not view that temptation as an opportunity to glorify God, as an opportunity to receive a crown of life? Because that's what's promised to those that endure temptation. Now I want to look at verse 17 and see how James helps us to overcome that temptation. How do we endure? Verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. What is the promise of every temptation? Every temptation is promising us something. No consequences. Okay, so there's no consequence. The promise of temptation, when, when you're, you're not looking at the death and destruction right up front, right? That's not, the, that's not, it's not leading with like this big warning sign. No, cigarette boxes do, but, but you're already sucked in at that point, right? For the most part, it's, it's, the, it's all good right? There's promise of pleasure. There's a promise of joy. There's a promise of satisfaction. There's a promise of fulfillment. There's a promise of fun, of entertainment. There is something good that we are going to receive that we feel we need in our life, some type of appetite that this is going to satisfy. And so there's always this promise, this need that will be filled in our lives. We are looking to satisfy some kind of desire to appease some longing in our souls to fulfill a craving of our flesh. In a sense, that temptation has been gift-wrapped with our name on the package. It's exactly what you need 
That's exactly what you want. The question is, do we open that package at face value, or do we trust the God who says that the gift is tainted, that there's a problem, that that package is not going to deliver on what it promises, that it will only bring death? It really is a matter of are we trusting what we feel and what we see, or are we trusting the God who says no? If we make this practical, we saw three scenarios from last week, right? We looked at Eve, we looked at Achan, we looked at David. And if you remember the situation with Eve, she's presented with some fruit. It looks good. It looks good to eat. The tree that it comes from is healthy. It looks good like all the rest of the trees. And there's a promise of knowledge that she feels like she'd like to have. And so everything about this tree and about this fruit is screaming, this is good for you. And there Satan is right beside her saying, yeah, you know what? God is keeping you from something good. This is good. This is always the problem. The only thing at that point that says no is the word of God. She does not yet have any experience to tell her that disobeying God is a bad thing. At that point, all she have has is the word of God to say, in the day you eat of that thing, you will surely die. You have Achan. He sees the gold. He sees the silver. He sees the beautiful clothing. He knows that he can take it without anyone noticing. So why not? There are no consequences. There's, there's only riches. There's only a better future for him, for his kids. I mean, maybe he's picturing this better life for his family. And the only thing stopping him is God's clear command that everything in that city is a curse. That you should not take any of it for yourselves. David looks at Bathsheba, and she's beautiful. He's lonely. And he's the king. And he knows that he can command it and she will be there. And so what's to stop him from taking her? I mean, he knows Uriah's gone. And if Uriah comes back, he's the king. He'll deal with it. He's above consequences. It's not going to be a problem for him. And the only thing telling him not to is God's word. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Everything else says do it. No consequences in sight. No chance of getting caught. Eve gets her delicious food and the knowledge she desires. Achan enjoys the easy money for the rest of his days so he can send his children to the best colleges so that he can buy his wife beautiful diamond rings and necklaces. And David gets a blissful night of pleasure with Bathsheba. No strings attached. That's the promise. Do any of those stories end like that? Not at all. No, they, they end the opposite. Eve, with Adam's help, brings death upon mankind. That's a big deal. Achan brings death upon 36 men who go to battle first before Joshua realizes there's a problem and goes to God and says, God, what's the deal? And he says, Israel has sinned. And so they finally find that it's Achan has sinned. So Achan causes death of these 36 men, and not only that, the death of himself and his whole family. David, his sin, sin brings death not only on his own child, but on Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and I believe on countless other people in the future. I really think that when you look at David's life, this is almost this turning point in his life where from this point on, even though at times he tried to do the right thing, 
the rest of his reign is people rising up against him, sons, his own children, his own children sinning. His, I mean, the rest of his reign seems to be marred by the consequences to this sin. There was no, there's no strings, there's always strings attached. There, there's never a sin that doesn't have consequence. And yet it lies. Every temptation is going to lie to you. This will be good. This is worth it. There will be no consequences. No one will ever know. And you deserve it. And can I tell you something? We can look at these stories and we can hear about the, those three people and say, they're so foolish. How could they not see what God had said? How could they not obey? But the problem with doing that is that not a person in this room hasn't done the exact same thing in a different scenario. Every single one of us at times have believed the lie. Every single one of us have acted believing there will not be consequences. Every single one of us at times have said that God is keeping something good from me and that this sin is better than pleasing, following, serving God in, that, in this moment. So let's not, let's get off our high horses and admit that this is us. Now we compare that promise of temptation that always fails with verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The word good gift here is agathos dosis. The word perfect gift is a completely different two words. It's telios dorame. They mean almost the same thing, but it's this idea of every beneficial gift or every design. Telios has is, is got this idea of a plan or design that's perfect for you. So everything, I mean, all-encompassing, everything good, everything truly good comes from God. That's what this is saying. Beautiful poetic language that contains two profoundly simple truths. All truly good gifts come from God, the Father of lights. We sang a song this morning called Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. And I think this is one of the lines of the song that we sing quickly, but we don't think much about, um, is, Have you not seen how all your longings have been granted in what he ordained? Do you realize that the longings inside of you, many of the longings inside of us, just to say we Many of the longings inside of us that Satan uses so that to, to lead us into sin were originally put there by God. And that they're not bad. In themselves, those longings are not bad. That God has given those longings because he wants to show his goodness toward us in, in showing us how he fulfills the longings that he has given us. How he can satisfy and only him. But what we do is we attempt to satisfy all of those longings in the wrong places, in the wrong context, outside of God's prescribed boundaries. And when we do that, we ruin the whole thing, right? We have believed Satan's lie that we can have this longing fulfilled outside of God's way. It's God's desire inside of us that he's given us. It's God's gift that satisfies that desire and it is only God's way that will truly satisfy forever. And so, have you not seen how all your longings have been granted in what he ordains? That God has given us ways 
to be satisfied in this life in the right way, in ways that are, that are helpful and beneficial to us. James gives us our first example of God's goodness in his creation in that he says he's the father of light. And this is the idea of that God is the creator of light. And when you think about that, you think about all the stars in the sky, you think about the sun, you think about that everything beautiful and good we see, we only see because light exists. And when you think about the most beautiful things that you've ever seen, oftentimes there's a part of them that is light, right? It's a, it's a sunrise. Now, mountains are absolutely beautiful. But when you see the sun rise over the mountains and you see the way that the light hits the valley and the sides, different aspects, it just becomes so much more beautiful, right? God's the creator of the light that does that. God is the creator of the, the light at sunset when you're on the beach and you look out and you're like, look at the colors in that sky. Unbelievable that is. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, from the, from the one who created all of that light. If you, if you want just a, a quick example, he's the father of lights. I think we can extend this to every good part of creation. Everything good we see in the world, created by God. That's the first truth. The second truth that we find here is that the creator never changes, that there is no variableness, neither shadow of changing, shadow of turning. This is the immutability of God. It is a rarely discussed but extremely important attribute of God. This is the reason that the word of God is relevant today. God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There are so many things that God can't do. We usually don't think that way, but, but God has limited himself in so many ways because he is always. He is always good. He is always true. He's always righteous. He's always holy. And because he's always those things, he's never changing. What he said at the very beginning is the same truth that is true now. And it's the same thing that he'll say for the rest of creation, for the rest of time. Right? He never changes. Nothing about him. He is not learning. He is not forgetting. He is not unaware. He is not undecisive. He is not weak. He is not fickle. He is who he was, and he will be who he is. It can get really confusing if you want to keep going like that. I mean, you get the point, right? What, what God said in the book of Luke, we can read today and we can learn from it because God is the same. And so what he said is true. And, and what a wonderful truth here that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from a God who never changes, who was always in the business of giving good and perfect gifts and always will be in that business because he never changes. He is as good as he was when he made the garden. Is that good now? And so let's see. I think what James does here is it's brilliant. He gives us in verse 18 one of the greatest things he has given to us. One of the best examples of his goodness. He says in verse 18, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. How do we know he is good? How do we know? I think this is a question that naturally arises from our text. And I think really this is the question that was the crux of the message from this morning, right? How do we know that, that he is good? How can we wait on an on, on eternal God knowing that whatever comes, um, whatever he does, 
is good. That his timing is always perfect. That even when the result that we hope to happen, expect to happen, doesn't happen, that God is still good. How do we know that? How do we trust God when the path ahead is only dark? And I think the answer is here. Are you born again? Are you a a born-again believer in Christ? Because if you are, you can only thank God for that. Of his own will, he begins. Was it your will? You didn't all of a sudden realize how awful and wicked you were and, and, and turn to God all by yourself and say, Lord, just make me... I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't you that, that thought up the plan of salvation. You really had absolutely nothing to do with it. The wonderful thing about the plan of salvation is the only thing that we bring is our sin. That is our contribution to everything good that, that, that Christ did on the cross. Here's, here's the sin that you have to pay for. We do nothing else. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His will is that we come to know him. How does that happen? Romans chapter 2, verse 4. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. So, so are we clear that his will is that we're saved and that, that we are saved because of his goodness that leads us there? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Of God, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. When we sinned, he devised a rescue plan. When we seek to live a life of sin and selfishness, he graciously pursues us. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine pursuing the one who is sinning against you? That is the mission of the cross. The mission of the cross is to seek and save that which is lost. Lost doesn't mean just like, man, they, they went in the forest and they just can't find their way out. Lost means that they're lost in their sin. That they've turned against God, turned to their own way to, to do what they want, and, and sometimes maybe try and find some way of being self-righteous, but, but never recognizing their sinfulness. And in that state, Christ comes to seek and to save that which was lost. When we attempt to justify ourselves, his word the word of truth, acts as a mirror to show us our reflection. We see our sinfulness, and we see our desperate need of God's grace. And I love here that it's called the word of truth. Because there are so many things yelling at us. There's so many voices in our mind. And here we have the word of truth. That that's, you're saved by the word of truth. There's a song by Casting Crowns, it's an older song now, but says, out of all the voices calling out my name, I will choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. And how much better off would we be if we realized how much we need this? I mean, how desperately we need God's word to speak truth in our lives because we are believing lies without knowing it. Because we're in a culture that's going to talk to us and tell us lies all the time. That we need God's word. And so we have the voice of truth. The credit for every part of your salvation is due to God alone. He begat you. You were born again of his will. The only evidence you need of God's goodness. The only thing you ask the question, how do we know God is good? How do we know we can trust him when things look bad? It's Christ hanging on the cross in your place. 
if that part of the story is true, and that's really the only part that matters, the part that matters the most, if Christ died on the cross and he truly is dying in the place of you, he is dying for you, he's dying, it's, it's the wrath of God that you deserve that's being poured on the head of Christ. If that part is true, then you cannot ever doubt his goodness. There are many times that you might not see the plan. There are many times that you might not know the end from the beginning, but you know that the one who does know the end from the beginning is the one that died in your place. And if that's true, then you never need to doubt his goodness. It's a lot easier said than done. But that is the truth. He saved us. <laughs> if, he, if we're born again, then he is good. Because it's all him that did that. And we find in this verse that he saved us for a reason. It says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This language of being a first fruit of his creatures is, is uh, strange to most of us. We don't speak this way often. But in the Old Testament, the farmers were required to bring the first crop of their harvest and present them to God. And this was kind of an interesting thing because... When you think of when a farmer needs a crop the most, when is it? It's not at the end of the harvest when they've been harvesting all summer. They, you know, they've got all the stuff down in the storehouse. The time that they need the crop the most, the third start, those first fruits, those are the most precious And yet they were required to give what was most needful for them, what was best for them, and give that to God. Now is that God just being mean? Okay, first stuff's mine. No, that wasn't the idea. The idea was that all of it is his. That every harvest at any point that ever occurs is because he is faithful, because he brings the rain, because he makes the seeds grow, because he does everything. And so bringing the first fruits is, is a demonstration to others that God has been faithful to me, and so I'm giving back to him just a small portion of what he's given to me. I believe there are so many applications to this truth. When we think about how what we give God often, how often do we give him what's first, what's best, what's most important? How often is it that our giving is like, well, I don't really use this anymore, so, so I'll give this up. Right? I don't really need this. This is extra cash that I have laying around. I, I, I guess I can give that part. How often do we give in a way that's sacrificial? How often do we give in a way that's first fruits? I'm not just talking about money, too. I'm talking about time. No, we, we protect this part of our time. We're not going to give that up. Okay, like, I'll, I guess I know I'm supposed to serve, so I'll give two hours here every week. First fruits. They were required to give what was first. And, and why did they do that? Because they recognized that everything that they had was from God. And they, that they were showing that God was faithful to them by giving a portion of that back and giving the best back. How often is church the last priority? How often is... is Serving God the thing that we do when we've got nothing else to do. It shouldn't be like that. Give God your best. Give to God sacrificially. He is the source of everything good in the first place. And so he has saved us for a reason that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Realize that, that you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be that. You're supposed to be that first offering that's given back to God because he's been so faithful, because he's been so good that he deserves at least that. 
So what would it look like if we gave God the first fruits of his harvest? If we gave him our best, if we made him our priority? As we look at this text, there are so many things that I think we ought to be doing differently. I'm I'm, I'm saying we, and I think we is kind of a cop-out. I ought to be doing differently. Um, There are ways that this text um, convicts me, because sometimes I think I give God um, what is convenient at times, and that shouldn't be the case. But there are two things as I read this text that just jump right out at me. So I want to give you those briefly, and then we'll close. The first one is that the cure for sin is more of God. The cure for sin is more of God. The best way to fight attraction to lesser things is to focus on the greater thing. We will sin less when we behold Christ more. We had a fantastic discussion, I think last this week in our small group, and it was around this idea of having affection for Christ. How, how do we manufacture? And this, this is the idea, because we know we ought to love Christ more. We know we ought to, to pursue him. But how do you do that with someone? How do you just all of a sudden desi- decide, you know what, I'm just going to have more affection for you. I'm going to love you more. And the answer, I think, is not just trying to force yourself to feel something that you might not feel at the moment. I think the answer with Christ is actually fairly easy. You spend time with them. How can you not love someone who is completely lovely? I mean, a lot of times the reason we don't love Christ like we ought to is not because we've seen him and spent time with him and, and decided he's just not our type. He's, you know, he's not like what we want. A lot of times what happens is we don't spend time with him. And we don't know him. And because we don't know him, we find it a lot easier to think about and, and have our affection go toward things that are lesser, that are unimportant. James' lesson here is do not err. Do not err. How do we do that? Remember that everything good comes from God, the Father of lights. Every good gift, every perfect gift, everything good in your life is from him. He is entirely, completely good. And so the more you spend time with him, the more that you walk with him, the more that you read his word, the more that you spend time in prayer, the more that you serve him and and just follow the Spirit's leading in your life. The more that you do those things, the more that you love Him. There's no, there's no easy street. There's no fast way. This is, this is a life of love. And when you look at other people in our church that seem to have that affection for Christ, what you'll notice is that that affection wasn't born overnight. That that was a life lived in pursuit of God. And the more they knew of Him, the more they loved Him. In fact, there's a song written by down here. It's called The More. And it's, it's a great song says, the more you show me, the more you grow me, the more your glory becomes all there is. The more I know you, the more I need you. The more I love you, the more you become to me. That really is what it's like with Christ. The more we need him, the more we love him, the more we pursue him. And it's just this wonderful cycle. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, The writer of Hebrews says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Can we just say that saying, do not err? And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And then verse 3, for the consider him. So, so how do we do this? How do we get past that just like, man, I got this sin on my back and I got to stop. And I gotta... 
a lot of that is look to Jesus, pursue him. Because sometimes just trying to deal with the sin without having something greater to pursue, it's not going to work. We are all, we are all bent to have affection for something. We're bent, we're made to worship, we're made to love, we're made to pursue. And so if we just try and stop pursuing, we're, we're always going to fail because we're made to do it. What we must do is learn what is worth pursuing and that he is worth pursuing. The cure for sin is more of God. And the second thing I see is that the good God we serve is deserving of our best. He is deserving of the best that we have. We ought not give him scraps. We ought not be convenient Christians. We ought not offer up to God only what we do not really want or need. We need to give God the best of our lives to be first fruits for him. If we would realize that pursuing God would help us get rid of that sin, and as we pursue God, we started giving him what he deserves, how transformative in our lives would that be? And I'm not talking about putting this like plastic cheap version of Christianity on you. I'm talking about really trying to love him and pursue him and sacrifice of ourselves. Christianity is hard. It's a hard thing. But it's not complicated. It's relationship. If you want to have a good relationship with someone, what do you need to do? You need to pursue them. You need to be willing to give things up for them. You need to give them your best. When you do that, there's this beautiful relationship that takes place and that relationship, it, it becomes so much greater than any other lesser thing that you ever pursued. We see that in, in small cases in our own lives with the relationships we have. And how much more with the relationship with our Creator? <laughs> this is a truth that is meant to change us. If we will pursue Christ and truly desire Him, there is great power that comes with that pursuit. The ability to say no to fleeting joys because we have found the true source of joy. There's a trend that I notice. If anybody's on social media, on Facebook, it seems like Facebook gives people a platform to tell the world about what they love. And people who I previously thought were normal soon become very abnormal. Because the things that they feel like they ought to be telling the world about constantly seem so empty and foolish. I look at them and I say, how do you have so much courage to get on this platform to be so passionate about something so silly? That takes a lot of guts. It really does. Like I, I'm scared. I would be scared to do it about stuff that I love. People do it all the time. I watch the videos. I'm like, man, you're fools. But, but why are we willing to pursue things like that? And some of the, some of these things I'm talking about, they're not they're not bad things. They're just empty things. They're just meaningless things. Why is that we pursue things that don't matter, like they do matter so much, and we say collectively that Christ is my all in all. And all I need is to love him, and I should pursue him. And then we stay fairly quiet about him. And we kind of keep that to ourselves. 
and we temper our relationship. We temper our joy. We, we're constantly trying to, you know, just walk the line of good Christianity and living a good life. I don't think that's how it's supposed to be. I think Christ really is supposed to be our all in all and that he's worth giving everything for. And, and if we feel as though we're in this ongoing battle against sin, but we've been saved by the grace of God. Can I tell you something? It is not that you cannot overcome the sin you face. The problem is that you won't pursue Christ instead of that sin. That, that hurts me to say. It's true for me sometimes. But that is the truth. If we would pursue Christ fully, he'd give us the power. We, we'd want him more than those things. So may we take James' advice God is the good, perfect giver of gifts, and he is the one worth pursuing. Let's pray.